We will be reading Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. You can follow along in your Bible, which is what I recommend, or you can follow along in the PowerPoint. Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at this time, at that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Please speak powerfully to us through it. Please enable me to serve your flock well. May there be no distractions from your voice this morning. And may many people be convicted of their sin, be freed from their sin, to turn toward life and obedience through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. You may have heard me mention before one of my previous jobs. I worked at a warehouse in Monroe. It's called Coresco Incorporated. Uh, we just counted things all day long, and sometimes we got to package those things and take them to the guy who shipped those things, but mainly it was just counting all day long. And many of my coworkers were from a Pentecostal background. Uh, do any of you have friends from a Pentecostal background, a more Holy Spirit-minded? Okay. Um, these guys were great. I loved these guys. This was right after high school. I didn't have a clue about much scripturally. They had a lot of different perspectives than I did. Growing up in my stiff, white Baptist church, um, not all that different from our Advent Christian church that we have here. Not saying we're stiff, uh, but we are. Uh, (laughs) I've always heard a church grows to look like its pastor. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we, we're doomed to be a stiff white church, I guess. Um, these guys were great, and they were so different from anything I'd ever experienced. And every day, they loved Jesus. They loved the Bible. That's all they wanted to talk about. It was maybe the first time I was ever around people who were just naturally that passionate about God and truth. And um, so we talked about it a lot. And one of the things that they brought up that challenged My belief was that they believed a person can lose his or her salvation. A Christian can be a Christian saved and can turn and lose their salvation. I wonder what you believe about that. Have you ever thought about that? Can a Christian lose 
his or her salvation once saved. Um, their perspective was that salvation works like an umbrella. And so long as you're under the umbrella of protection in Jesus, you're okay. But when you choose to sin, you step out from underneath that umbrella. And so if Christ returned in that moment, or if you got a brain aneurysm and just died in that moment, you would not go to heaven. You'd be eternally separated from God because you were outside of the umbrella of protection. This is how they, I'm not saying all Pentecostals believe that this is how these guys, this is how Curtis Nivens Jr. (laughs) explained it to me. One of the coolest names I've ever heard. And I didn't know how to respond to that, and I wrestled with it. Um, But I remembered that conversation when I studied this passage because I think the same question that Curtis was bringing up is sort of the same question Paul is addressing here. Because, I, you know, I told him, basically, I don't know why, but I really don't believe that. And I don't know my Bible, but I don't believe what you're saying. I just know that my background says, once saved, always saved. You know, once you receive that gift, he's not going to take it back kind of thing. Um, I couldn't articulate it very well. And his objection to that was, you people just want to believe that so you can just do whatever you want to do. You can just go sinning. You can, you know, go to every potluck and gluttonize yourself on fried chicken all day long. Gluttonize. (laughs) Coining new words. Um, You just don't want to have any rules or restrictions. You just want to be free. Just do your thing. You don't care about holiness. That's why you refuse to believe that you can lose your salvation. And I, you know, I didn't have a good answer. I was 17, 18. I was an idiot back then. I don't know that I'm much better off now. But I think that his same, his same uh, question is phrased a bit differently here. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? This ridiculous grace, this extravagant grace that we've been talking about, are you just saying we can just do whatever we want? That this grace is so extravagant that I'm just so free that I can sin all I want. I can commit adultery. I can drink myself drunk every night. I can steal stuff, whatever. If I'm in Jesus, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus' perfection, even though I continue to sin. Are you saying that we can just sin because we're under grace and not under law? That's the question here. I think that was Curtis's basic question. And I really think this passage gives us a good, at least one facet of a good answer to this. So let's just dig in. Uh, Verse 15 is where he phrases the question, What then? Are we to sin Because we are not under law, but under grace, by no means. At first, I thought Paul was addressing a problem in the Roman church that people really wanted to sin. That Christians just wanted to sin, and he's saying, no, you can't sin. But I think maybe he's actually addressing the question of Curtis Nivens Jr., probably of the more religious Jewish Christians saying, Paul, this This grace thing that you're giving to the Gentile Christians is too lenient. And they're just going to think they can just go sinning all they want. Remember, the Jewish Christians are from their law, legalism, rule-based background. And they entered into Christianity from that. And then they see all these Gentiles coming in from their paganism, you know, prostitute-visiting background. They come into Christianity from that. And the Jews are worried that the rules aren't going to be strict enough for these newbies. 
and that they're just going to think they can keep sinning. So Paul, this grace that you're preaching is just too extravagant. How are we going to keep people from sinning? We need, we need something that says there's an umbrella of grace, but if you sin, you're outside of that. And Paul's saying, no, by no means. By no means will someone who's a Christian be longing to go back into sin. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's basically what he's arguing. He sets it up in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? See, we, like I think the Jewish Christians back then and many people, need to move from behavior modification to heart modification and change, the transformation that comes through the gospel. We need to think more in terms of slavery. I think Paul's saying you're you're just not thinking about it quite right. Don't think in terms of how to motivate behavior. Think in terms of slavery. Are you guys aware that slavery is still very much a modern-day practice? Just do a Google search, modern-day slavery, and you'll find that it's very much a modern-day practice. People being forced to do work they don't want to do against their will, from child labor to poor people that are shipped across a border to where they don't know anybody, they don't have anybody, and if they want to eat and live, they've got to do work for their slave drivers, to uh, sex trafficking. It's huge. Slavery is still huge. I found a couple of stories um, about current things that are going on in the last couple of years. Um, Here's one about organized gangs that are trafficking children to suburban UK homes to work in cannabis farms. The children, usually usually aged 14 to 16, about y'all's ages over there, Tommy and Evan, are trafficked into the country from Vietnam, Vietnam before being locked in the houses to act as gardeners for the cannabis plants. From uh, 2005 to 2007, two-thirds of the 1,500 cannabis farms in London raided by the police were run by Vietnamese criminal gangs. And the article goes on to explain these children are forced to sleep in, in cupboards and attics, and they live in danger of electrocution because they've got these rigged-up elect- electricity to supply the, the lamps for what they're growing. Um, it says, during police raids, traf- let's see, during police raids, trafficked children and adults Oh, over there, they're identified not as victims of crime, but they face arrest for drug offenses. So th- these kids are taken from their homes, their people. They're forced into slavery in these suburban houses in the U.K. And then when they're arrested, if they're like 16, they're tried as, as drug offenders, not as victims. This actually is going on. Um, another story in Brazil, Brazil's anti-slavery task force rescued 4,634 slaves from remote ranches and plantations in 2008, a couple years ago. Uh, the year before, the task force took part in a record 133 raids, visiting 255 different farms. They freed, saves, um, freed slaves that had been paid just the most minimal compensation you can imagine, uh, so minimal that they were slaves. They were not employees. It says, in Brazil, it's common for people from the impoverished northeastern areas of the country to be approached by a middleman known as a cat and tricked into slavery through promises of work and good, rate, good wages. Instead, the farmers find themselves trafficked to remote rural settlements where they're trapped, sometimes at gunpoint, 
and expected to cut sugarcane or clear tracks of the Amazon rainforest to pay off debts incurred through the cost of their food and housing. So they take people and they, they trick them into coming. They think they're going to find work. And instead, they, they get trapped. Their employers have guns. And they say, you owe us for feeding you and giving you a place to stay. You better work. This, is, this happens. Okay, now imagine one of these anti-slavery task force, force gets a police raid to occur. And they free all these slaves. And these slaves, maybe since their childhood, have been forced to clear Amazon rainforest at gunpoint. Freed all these slaves. Do you think they need a bunch of rules to keep them from trying to run back into the rainforest to their slavery? No, they're freed. They're freed from being slaves against their will. Paul's saying, don't don't think in terms of trying to modify behavior. If they're Christians, they've been freed from slavery. They're not going to want to go back. That word obey in there in 16, uh, you're slaves of the one whom you obey. I looked that up and it has a connotation of to listen to what you hear and respond to. So in the passage, he's talking about slavery and he says, basically, you're either serving sin or you're serving obedience. Which one do you obey? Which one, when you hear it, you respond? Okay, so it's sort of uh, examination time for us. This is a great Am I a Christian passage. Some of you aren't completely sure. This is a good self-evaluation passage. Which one makes you respond more, sin or obedience? When I say sin, think temptation. When temptation comes calling, temptation to some sin, do you feel as though you have to obey it? And I don't know what your particular temptations are. Let's just say food. I saw a commercial the other day for a product called Magnum. And it's like the most deluxe, awesome-looking ice cream bar I've ever seen in my life. Has anybody ever seen a commercial for Magnum? It's like, okay, you've seen it. They phrase it like it's the first time ever offered in the United States. Like, it's so delicious, it's been illegal in America until just now. And it's ice cream and then a thick layer of chocolate and then a layer of uh, caramel, then another thick layer of chocolate. And it just looks wonderful. And I have a sweet tooth. I want, you know, I'm very weak in that area. And I would eat myself to death if I was in a room full of magnums. And I see that, and it's like it's calling out to me. And I want to stop what I'm doing and go to a store and find it and eat it. That's a stupid example, but what is it for you? you? You hear it, the temptation, you see it, it calls out to you. Do you have any victory over these temptations or are you helplessly enslaved to them? If you are in an ongoing way helplessly enslaved to temptation to sin, it's a red flag. I'm not saying Christians don't sin. I'm saying Christians have freedom from the necessity of sinning. On the other hand, more positive way to look at it, when you hear the Bible, whether it's me preaching it to you or you read it or you hear a sermon on the radio, are you compelled to respond to it? Later in the passage, we're going to see that non-Christians are enslaved to sin, but they're free in regard to righteousness. 
So for a non-Christian sitting in here, everything I'm saying, you know, you feel free to just, you know, whatever. It's Matt, he, of course he believes this stuff. We pay him to believe it. Bible's all well and good. I'm doing my service. I'm here. I'm going to go home. I'm going to do my thing. And you just, you don't respond to it. It has no authority over you. You don't feel as though this is about you. See, the Bible says when you're freed, you become a Christian, you're freed from slavery to sin into slavery to God and the Bible. Either way, you're compelled to do something. Which one has the stronger force over you? Sin or righteousness? It's a good self-evaluation question. I've told you so many times, I don't necessarily believe that you're all Christians. I'm getting to know many of you better. I see more fruit of true belief in many of you. I don't know some of you at all, still, really, other than our pleasantries here. You examine your heart. It's good to examine ourselves. Just like last week, well, I'm not going to go down that path. That will confuse things. Think about that for just a second, though. This is saying that all people are slaves. And there are two masters. You are either serving sin or you're serving righteousness, which means God. How does that strike you? Slaves? Slaves is just a negative word. I mean, there's no positive word. There's no positive connotation to slavery. Yet here it's saying, well, everybody's a slave. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. How does that strike you? I'm just curious. And even though you can't answer me, it feels good to ask you. (laughs) That you're slaves to God if you're a Christian. Does that strike you as negative in any way? It did to me at first. You know, I knew I was going to be communicating this to you. I'm thinking, that just sounds bad. You know, I want to say you're freed from sin and you're just free. But it's not. You're freed from sin and now you're enslaved to God. Well, it is a positive thing, and I think the, the key to that is hidden in the next few verses where Paul explains what's true. Remember last week how we said Paul never tells you what to do until he tells you what's true? Uh, our change is more based on what's already true about us in the gospel, not our willpower to do good stuff. So here comes what's true in verses 17 and 18. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So what's true in there? You in here who are Christians, you used to be slaves to sin. You have been set free from sin. And you have become obedient from where? Right, see your head shift to the PowerPoint. You have become obedient from, you can say it like out loud even, you have become obedient from the heart. The heart is the, it encompasses the idea of your identity and your desire. So this is already true. You have been set free from sin. In that process, you have become obedient from the heart. Something about your deepest core of you has changed. And something about your identity and your desires now flows toward obedience where it used to flow toward sinfulness. 
I think the reason he uses slavery is because the fact is we are all slaves to our desires. You do what you want to do. I do what I want to do. Like whoever it was, I've, I've heard so many different people attribute this quote to so many different people, but somebody once said, you can sum up everything in the Bible by love God and do what you want. Because we do what we want, and what we want follows what we love. It's true that when you become a Christian, you receive extravagant grace, and that extravagant grace brings extravagant freedom. But it's also true that it brings extravagant change. And now your identity and your desires have changed from gravitating towards sin to gravitating toward righteousness. Everybody following with me? I know Paul's tough. I'm blaming it on Paul if this is hard for you. It is hard. It's, it takes brain power. But we're smart people, right? Not too confident about that. I mentioned earlier that we need to move from a behavior modification mindset to a heart modification mindset. This verse is where I got that idea. The world conditions us to think behavior modification. How can we change people's behaviors? Think about cigarettes. Have you seen the new cigarette warning labels? And I know some of you smoke in here. I'm not getting on your case. It's just a good example. Have you seen the new cigarette warning labels? I'm really actually curious if you've seen them. So Half and half. Cigarette companies are now, I think they're still required to put these horrible, horrible images on their warning labels, and they take up a large percentage of the cigarette package. And it's a picture of a guy laying in a gurney with, like, you could tell his chest has been cracked open. It's like staples. And there's a picture of a guy breathing smoke out of the hole in his neck. And there's a picture of a mom holding a baby and, like, breathing smoke right into the baby's face. And they're just trying. They're trying to say, Smokey's going to kill you. (laughs) Stop. They're trying to modify people's behavior. Is it going to work? No. People who smoke know what it does. People are going to do what they want to do. You can only do so much through behavior modification. The amazing thing about God is he doesn't just modify our behavior. He just changes everything about us when we become a Christian. Our heart. Nobody else can do that. There is no promise like what we have in Christianity. What we have in Christianity is God through Jesus will just change you. What everybody else has is you need to change all this stuff about yourself so you'll be okay. Christianity says you you can't. You're all screwed up. But go to Jesus and he'll change you. That's why it's good news, not good advice. There's more declaration than obligation in the scripture, as one person said. Don't remember who he was. Contrast it with Dr. Phil. I know some of you guys read, watch, listen to Dr. Phil. And I have to be honest, I really like Dr. Phil. You can't help but like Dr. Phil. And I was looking on his website. I just thought this might be a good example of behavior modification versus what we have in Christ. And it was, in fact, there's a a link for advice. You click it, and pretty big on the screen it says, Behave your way to success with Dr. Phil's advice. Behave your way to success 
with Dr. Phil's advice. Now, let me just say, there's truth to that. You can behave your way to success. If you can clean up your behavior, you can be a heck of a lot more successful. I think in Christianity, we replace success with salvation, and we think, behave your way to salvation with Matt Broadway's advice. I know you don't think that highly of me necessarily, but whoever your preacher is that you like to listen to, behave your way to success with fill-in-the-blanks advice. That's not Christianity. Christianity is believe your way to salvation. Behavior follows. So I looked at Dr. Phil's website to try to figure out how he counsels people to behave their way to success. I found where he has answers about anger, anger management. Are any of you angry right now? Just snap a pencil and that'll be my sign that you're really angry right now. No, it's too early for y'all to be angry yet. His advice about anger was really, really good. It really was. I don't listen to Dr. Phil that much. I, I just hear him every once in a while. Like I said, you can't help but like him. His advice about anger was actually really, really good. Uh, it paralleled biblical wisdom pretty well. It was, um, you know, it's, it's really not just about the anger. You've got to dig deeper to figure out what's uh, in you that makes you respond so angrily. It's really not about the situation or the person. You've got to dig deeper and figure out what's really behind it. Uh, all that, I think, is good and biblical. But the problem is when he digs down to the bottom, what do you do? His advice was just forgive him. Forgive whoever it is. Or just stop, stop feeling that way. <laughs> well, I can't. I mean, that's the whole point. We can't just, I can't just forgive somebody. It's so unnatural to just forgive somebody. So you can find a lot of good advice in the world, but without heart change, you're not going to get very far. You can think more clearly about your anger and manage it a little better, but you won't conquer it. You can think a little bit more clearly about your anxiety and maybe manage it a little better, but you won't conquer it. You won't cure it. One of my counseling professors uh, hated the word cope. He refused to let us use it in his class. Because he says, Christians, we don't, we don't cope with our sins and our struggles. We conquer. That's what the Bible says. And you don't conquer through behavior modification. You conquer through heart modification. And the fact of the matter is, you can't change your heart. I can't change your heart. Only God can change your heart. So back around full circle, you're wondering, where is he going? To the slavery idea. You have to acknowledge the truth that you are a slave to your desires. You do what you want to do. It expresses itself in sin sometimes. You want to look at that, say that, respond like that, eat that, whatever. So you do, or it expresses itself in righteousness. You want to hear this. You want to see it work, it out, work itself out in your life. You want to repent You do what you want to do. I'm worried that that's unclear. That's why I hesitate to move forward. Because some of you feel like you do lots of stuff you don't want to do. You go to work every morning and you hate that place. But dig underneath there and there's motivators of what you want underneath it. You wouldn't do it if you, you know, you didn't want to eat. You didn't want to drive a decent car. You didn't want to live in a decent house. You know, there's desires underneath everything we do. 
So what's true about the Christian is your heart has been changed and you're free from your slavery for your sinful desires, but now you're obligated through your slavery for righteous desires. I'm going to just assume that you're following with me. We're going to keep going. Because then in verse 19, he gets to what to do for Christians in their battle against sin. In verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's using this slavery metaphor because we have, uh, as Mark Driscoll calls it, our three-pound fallen brain is only capable of understanding so much. So he uses this worldly metaphor of slavery just to help us understand. It's not a perfect analogy, but it helps because of our natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the what to do, it's all about how you present your body parts to either sin or righteousness. That's what members means. Present means like you bring it near to, to to present to either sinful things or righteous things. And Christians have the choice. So picture two different people wake up in the morning. They're both slaves. One of them wakes up, they put on their clothes, and they go, they take themselves to sin, to spend their day serving sin. Selfishness, bitterness, lustfulness, greediness, laziness, whatever. The other person wakes up in the morning. He used to serve that master, but instead he takes himself to serve righteousness. Obedience, worship, making disciples, living for other people's benefit, not your own, that kind of stuff. That's the idea Paul's getting at. The one slave over here grows more deathly over time. The slave over here serving righteousness grows more lively over time. That's what the scripture says. It's the very practical steps. Taking your eyes off of pornography and putting your eyes on true, beautiful things like the word. Taking your ears from, well, from the audio pornography that's on the radio. Have you listened to 95.1 recently? Man, just since I was in high school, I I I hate to be the crotchety old minister that's like, you shouldn't listen to that sinful music. But wow, it's, uh, listen to it just to see what our people who love pop music are listening to. Man, graphic, graphic stuff. Take your ears from that and, and present them to something good and true and beautiful. Take your hands and feet away from laziness and greed and whatever. Put them towards service. You're free to do this now. Not everybody's free to do this. Take your lips from gossip and backbiting, put them toward edifying people and building people up. And then he explains it a little further in the last couple of verses. Verses 20 through 22. uh, 23, actually. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
were born enslaved to sin, just to kind of wrap it all up, if I've lost you through confusing stuff so far, come back now. This is going to wrap it up, recap it. You're born into slavery to sin. The Bible teaches that. Look at Psalm 51. David understood that he was conceived and there was sin infecting him. He was born. He was infected with sin. Uh, in the New Testament, it says the same things in Ephesians chapter 2. You can flip there on your own time. Uh, we're children of wrath, children of darkness, naturally. So Lady Gaga has it right, partly with her song, Born This Way. Has anybody heard this song of, from her? She has it somewhat right. We are all born this way with a lot of the things she describes in there and a lot of the things she alludes to. But not everything we're born with is good. Much of what we're born with is sinful. Ethan's giving me an uh, object lesson as I... Thank you, Ethan. <laughs> I'm not going to go down the Lady Gaga born this way road today. This passage isn't really going that way either. Um, but yes, uh, much of what we have in our culture, we are born that way. But born that way does not equal that way is good or right. So just keep that in mind. You'll hear that argument more and more and more and more as we try to accept all kinds of things that are not good. Some of us are born with proclivities toward rage and anger. Well, I'm born that way. I'm going to celebrate it. Bam, punch you right in the face. I was born that way. Let's celebrate that. Some people are born prone to addiction. Well, hey, man, you're born that way. Kill yourself with addiction. Celebrate that. It, there's no logical sense to it whatsoever. Born that way does not equal good. We're born messed up. We're born gravitating towards sin. But once you become a Christian, it's like gravity switches. I had this, uh, when I was a kid, I don't still have this fear. When I was a kid, I had this, this fear of what if gravity just switched and all of a sudden, instead of pulling us toward the earth, it expelled us away from the earth. What, none of you have ever thought about that? Everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. That's the reason why it still freaks me out when I see a balloon float off into the atmosphere. And I'm like, what if that were me? That'd be terrible. And I would envision, like, if that happened right now, I might survive that fall to the ceiling. And then maybe I could climb around somewhere. But if you're outside, you're a goner. I can't even see you from looking up into those lights. <laughs> I share that stupid fear because that's sort of what happens when you become a Christian. It's, we're born our whole life. We are, we're pulled down to sin. Gravity pulls us to sin. It's our natural spot to stand. But when you become a Christian, it's like gravity switches on his head, and all of a sudden, you're pulled up away from that to righteousness. And so everything changes. So whereas once you were free to sit here and listen to me tell you to present the members of your bodies to righteousness, and you're free to just walk out, and whatever, and you gravitate back toward your sin, Christians aren't so free from that righteousness anymore. And something in you pulls you toward obedience to these things and belief in these things. Now, some of you have no clue what I'm talking about because all you know is total freedom to take or leave what you hear from the Bible. Listen, that is a red flag. It's a big red flag. If you can hear God's voice and walk out of here indifferent with no gravitational pull toward it, it's a big red flag. Investigate that. 
And if you can live weeks at a time gravitating towards some particular sin without any ability to stand up off of it, to get away from it, that's another red flag. And I'm not saying that if you're sinning, you're not a Christian. Far from that. But I'm saying if you have like zero power over sin in your life, you very well may not be a Christian. And I'm not saying if you forget some scripture that you heard, you're not a Christian. But if you have zero gravitational pull back to this, there, you very well may not be a Christian. If you can just go and you have no desire to open your Bible whatsoever, you have the word of God sitting here and you have no desire at all. Yeah, it's hard. Reading's hard. People aren't all readers. But man, who cares? You can read and it's God's word. If you have no desire at all, that's a big red flag. Let this expose your heart. See where you are. I don't necessarily think that you're all Christians. So getting back to what this text is talking about, the objection that Curtis Nivens Jr. gave me, um, you don't believe people can lose their salvation because you want to be free to do whatever you want to do. The fact of the matter is, if you're a Christian, you are free to do whatever you want to do. But what you really want to do grows more and more to be what God says. When I counsel people, a lot of my work is to try to figure out what's their bottom line desire in the situation. And usually what it boils down to is there's a choice between outright sin and rebellion or obedience to God. And we dig down to the bottom, you know, we wrestle with these things. Dig down to the bottom motivation. And if down there on the core is really, even though it's painful and I don't want to do it, I don't want the action, down at the very bottom level, I really want to obey God. That's good. Sometimes people down at the lowest level, what they really want is just what's going to feel good to them. They really feel no gravitation to God at all. So what do you gravitate toward? Where are you with this? And if you ever run into Curtis Nivens Jr., and he tells you that you're under an umbrella of salvation, and if you step out of it, and a stray bullet from somewhere hits you and you die, you're not going to be saved? It's not true. The fact of the matter is, if you're straining to get out from the umbrella of grace that badly, you're probably not a Christian at all, and you probably haven't been set free from your sin. Grace is extravagant. It brings extravagant freedom. But even more than that, it brings extravagant change. And I want all of us to experience that change together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It, it, to our weak little minds, it is complicated sometimes, but it is powerful and true and applicable to our lives. And I pray that their Holy Spirit, that it would just guide us to truth in response to what we've heard that the non-Christians in the room would see that clearly and would commit their lives to Jesus Christ, that the Christians in the room would see clearly the freedom they have from sin and that that gravitational pull toward you and righteousness and obedience would be even stronger in their lives and they'd experience even greater freedom from the sins that trip them up. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.